0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Let's pray together. God with us, King of nations, Prince of peace, we praise you for our hope in Christ. And we pray you'd work amongst us now through your word, by your spirit, for the glory of our King and all of God's people said together, amen. Please grab a seat. Welcome this morning. My name is Dave. I have the unbelievable privilege of being the youth minister here. I bring you grace and peace from the teenagers of our church. And like Megan, I love Lego. I didn't know this about myself until we had children, and then we bought some for our daughters, and I discovered I actually really enjoy it. I love the satisfying click of the pieces fitting together. I love the variety of all the different shapes and sizes, and I love the sense of accomplishment you get from building something. So you gotta understand, I'm not particularly handy, and so I don't get that feeling much. Someone bought me a toolkit once as a present, And all the tools were individually wrapped, and so as I opened it and cut myself very badly trying to open the hammer, (laughs) I realized, maybe this is not the gift for me. And so the sense of building something is not something I get very often, but Lego I can do. Because I can make trains and and towers, I can make cities and jungles with palm trees and little monkeys that swing on vines. I love Lego. Lego. The problem is, I'm not the only person in my house who loves Lego. Freya is two next week, and she loves it too. The issue is, we love Lego in different ways. I love the feel of the pieces clicking together. Freya loves the as you pull them apart. I love the many creative shapes, the vibrant colors. Freya loves the taste of the pieces this point's important to say we're mostly using Duplo, okay? So not a choking hazard. I'm a great dad. <laughs> I love the sense of accomplishment I get from building my great city. And Freya loves the look on Daddy's face when she destroys all my hard work. Because <laughs> you see, I nearly had it. It was almost perfect. I almost had everything exactly where I wanted it. And then Godzilla turns up and ruins everything, and I must admit, that hurts way more than it should. It, it, it kills me, a little part of me dies, and, and it makes me wonder, why does that hurt so much? It's a pretend city, this is a higher than reasonable level of frustration. What is going on in me? Well, here's my theory, it's that I long for a moment just a moment where everything feels like it's in the right place, where the colors match and the buildings make sense, and it, it just feels finished. Even if it's my pretend little town, that, that's a feeling I ache for. You know that feeling? You know that longing? Maybe you've had glimpses of it, where everything is in the right place. Well, the Jewish people have a word for that feeling, shalom. Roughly translated, the word shalom means peace, but that doesn't quite fully capture it because when we think peace, we normally think the absence of conflict, Right? But shalom is more than that. Shalom's not just the absence of conflict. It's the absence of all chaos. There's no conflict because there's no disorder. Everything is right. It all fits. It all works. It all makes sense. And it all is in harmony. There's no chaos anywhere, just peace. That's why shalom is such a great feeling. And with Lego, I can nearly get there. Almost. That's why it hurts so much to watch it all come tumbling down. So in my more reflective moments, as I wonder why I'm so upset about this Lego, I realize maybe this frustration taps into something a little bit bigger than plastic blocks. Right? You go to clean the kitchen, and you've almost finished the last dish, and then someone spills their drink. I start to wonder, will there ever be shalom in this kitchen? I go to work, and I just want to get to the end of my to-do list, but the emails keep coming. And I wonder, will there ever be shalom in this job? We long for it in relationships, don't we? Just once, we we want to go to that family reunion where everything is just right, and everyone gets along the whole time, but, but usually it's only a matter of time until someone gets tense, Someone gets stressed, someone gets angry, and we start to wonder, will there ever be shalom in our family? We just long for it everywhere, don't we? In our world, and yet we open our news feeds and see news of wars and rumors of wars. We drive to church and see that the Barwon River does not look the way it's supposed to look this week. And I just get this overwhelming feeling that things are out of place. Something is not right. Things are not how they're supposed to be. And you don't have to be particularly spiritual to feel that. Because as all of us look at the world, all of us can agree, things are not quite how they're supposed to be. Even if you believe that the world's some sort of cosmic coincidence, just a collision of atoms without cause... And you're welcome to believe that. But even if that is you, I don't think that explains your frustration with the way things are. Because this world is just too disappointing to be random. Life hurts too much to be meaningless. And so every single one of us is stuck with this longing, this hope of shalom, It seems to me that it's this longing which ultimately drives politics. We've got three headings this morning. The first one is the pursuit of politics, and it's a short one, but but the point is this. Whether you lean left or right, shalom is the goal, isn't it? of your political party, of your engagement. Now, to be sure, political parties totally disagree on how to get there. And they totally disagree on some of the details of what shalom actually involves. But as we come to the end of our left and right series, it's worth acknowledging that words like peace, love, harmony, justice, fairness, these are words used on both sides of the aisle. Because, this, because shalom is the universal longing of every human heart. And that explains why some of these political discussions can get so tense. Because the stakes are just so high. It feels like shalom is on the line and it can feel like the other guys, whoever they are for you, are the ones standing in the way of that kind of peace. This also explains why Christians don't put all of their eggs in a single political basket. We get involved, absolutely. We've heard that over the last 10 weeks. But we don't put all our hopes in a single political party because we put our hopes on a single person. I don't know if you noticed it, but, but the reading we had before from Eva, so wonderfully read, had all sorts of n- names and titles. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And what was the last one? Prince of Shalom. Prince of Shalom. That's what the Hebrew says. Here is a promise spoken nearly 3,000 years ago into a dark and corrupted time where people were crying, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And here is a promise spoken by Isaiah that says, where there was chaos, there will be a kingdom of justice and righteousness and love and peace. The promise of one who would have the government on his shoulders and bring an end to all the corruption, an end to all the chaos, an end to all the conflict. One who could actually bring things back to the way they're supposed to be. We read it there in verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You see the connection there? As his government increases... So does the peace. So does the shalom. They go together, and the increase of these things will one day be limitless, unending perfection, as all things are in their proper place. And for the first time in history, they'll stay there. That's our great hope as believers in Jesus, which brings us to part two, the end of democracy. I'm a big fan of democracy. I'm not down on it at all. And I do think we should be just so grateful for what we have. There's lots of disagreement and lots of difficulty. I I get that. But I do think we should be just so grateful as we get to stand in the open air, in a queue at our local primary school, and have our biggest anxiety be about whether or not we should get a sausage at the end. We should be deeply grateful for our democratic systems and participate in them cheerfully and thoughtfully. But we should not expect that we'll get to the last day, the beginning of eternity as Jesus returns. We should not expect that we'll stand before his throne and vote. Because the New Testament is pretty clear. Jesus is king... And there's nothing particularly democratic about it. See, one of the great functions of our democracy, which is a good one, I think, is the limitation of power, right? All these checks and balances that we have in place to ensure that a single person just can't do too much damage. For starters, we have a fair and free election where we all get our voices heard without coercion. And then the most extraordinary thing happens. We do it again. Just a few short years later, we get to have another go in case things haven't worked out the way that we'd hoped, and, and everyone gets another say, and we can mix things up if we want to. And even if it is going well, and we move in the same direction for a while, we put a cap on the number of times a single person can be in power. There's only so long someone can do it to prevent too much imbalance. And even while someone is in power, while they do hold their seat or their position, There's a whole other party that we also elected whose job it is to oppose them. There's a whole other party whose job it is to provide accountability, to provide transparency, and to prevent someone selling the farm. That's our system. It's full of checks and balances. It's not perfect, but I do think it's a privilege to participate in such a peaceful democracy, which is why it's so jarring. To compare that to the rule and reign of Jesus. Because when you consider the nature of Jesus and his kingship into eternity, you realize pretty quickly there's nothing especially democratic about it. For starters, there's no opposition party. There's that famous image in Revelation 19 where the rider on the white horse comes to rescue, and it's like this glorious, high feeling. you like, Images of Gandalf in the final Lord of the Rings movie. But if you read the rest of that passage, it's kind of brutal. Some are thrown into the lake of fire. Others are slain, left for the birds to come and eat their guts. It's kind of full on. But the point of the imagery is crystal clear. This rain will be unopposed. We see this picked up in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a universal submission to this king. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, whether you followed him on earth or not, whether you would have voted for him or not, you will bow your knee to him one day. And not only is Jesus king for all, he's then king forever. You see, in the passage we had read out from Isaiah, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you notice in these verses, his government will increase and there will be no end from this time forth and forevermore. That, that's the time frame. On the rule and reign of Jesus. In other words, term limits just don't apply here. This is an eternal reality that this king would lead unopposed for all forever. And it leaves us with a very big question. Is that a good thing? Are we okay with that? If you're an unbeliever, you are almost certainly asking that question. But, but even for those of us who have been following Jesus for a while, we do wonder from time to time, is that going to be any good? After all, one person calling all the shots for all the people without an expiry date, we have a word for that. It's a dictatorship. And it's fair to say that through human history... Dictatorships and shalom don't often go together. Each dictator I can think of has been blinded by selfishness and brought chaos instead of peace. And so this could be quite a terrifying prospect, give one person this much power, because giving someone else that much authority makes you vulnerable. Vulnerable. It's risky to have someone else calling all the shots because people abuse power all the time. It's not hard to think of all sorts of dictators who've done that, but but it's also not hard to think of CEOs or managers or even, sadly, church ministers who use their power for selfish gain, who abuse their power at the expense of others. Maybe they're motivated by their own sense of Worth or their own bank balance or their own reputation but but whatever it is, people like that are not motivated by what 's best for me. surely only I am right only i 'm motivated by what 's best for me so shouldn 't shouldn 't I only trust me? It does seem that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and so The question is, why should we think Jesus is going to be any different? Why should we look forward to this future? Because this is the kind of power that should make us nervous, unless Jesus is the kind of king we can trust. So how do we know if we can trust him? Well, this is where Christianity comes alive. Kings usually start their revolutions with armies. Jesus came with nappies. That's how we know. That's how we know we can trust him, which brings us to part three, the boy who would be king. Remember how our reading began. For us, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. This promise points towards Jesus, and the staggering thing about this Jesus is the way that he came to become our king. He came as a child. He made himself vulnerable. He made himself killable. And he did it for the sake of others, for the sake of us. In Philippians 2, we read, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Paul goes on, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The infinite took on finitude. The omnipotent took on weakness. Jesus, God himself, takes on vulnerability by becoming human. He takes on flesh. He empties himself. And his vulnerability just doesn't stop At the manger. We read on in Philippians. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus saw his vulnerability through. All the way to the end. Through to humiliation through to torture, through to the excruciating death of crucifixion. I have this friend who, in their past, was a victim of abuse. Grew up in a broken home and had some broken relationships along the journey. And She became a Christian for the most incredible reason. She says, when I discovered that Jesus knew what it was like to be hit, and when I learned that he did that for me, that was all I needed. when I discovered he knew what it was to be hit and that he did that for me. That was all I needed. Now, she wasn't kidding. She didn't realize that eternal life was part of the package for some time. It was a good day when she discovered that was thrown in as well <laughs> by becoming a Christian. But, but that was all she needed. That was what she needed to know, to know that this is a king She could trust. And that's how it's supposed to work. It's right there in Philippians 2. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. For that reason, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, because he died for us, therefore he's a worthy king. Most kings come in on chariots. Jesus rode in on a donkey. Most kings wear a crown of jewels. Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Most kings ascend to a throne. Jesus was lifted up on the cross. And so there can be no doubt that he's a king we can trust. Because here is a king who uses all of his power for the good of others. Here is a king who went to the ultimate lengths to do that. He takes on vulnerability for our sake. He loves us like that. And he continues to offer that same kind of love to any who would come to him. He doesn't say, all authority has been given to me, therefore get in line. No, he says, come to me, all who are weak, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, I have come so that you would have life and life to the full. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve. Here's a king who gave his life for us. And think about what eternity will be like. See, the Bible teaches that we can look forward to all sorts of shalom, including shalom of the body, a time when our bodies are just better. They're peaceful. They work the way they're supposed to. There's no more decay. And we know that because of the resurrection. We'll all get new and better bodies because Jesus has one. But there's something incredibly surprising about the fully realized shalom body of Jesus. He's got holes in his hands. For the rest of eternity, shalom in bodily form has holes in his hands as an eternal reminder that this is the kind of king he is. One who would give everything for the sake of others. This is the kind of king we can trust. And so we wait. We wait for this king to return and bring with him the fully realized kingdom of Shalom. When Shalom will sweep through the earth like a tidal wave, we wait, we hope, For that day, but until then, we don't just sit around. As those who wait for the day, there's a few things we want to do to wait well. Here's three ideas to finish. The first idea is: pray for our political leaders, won't you? We do this because God calls us to. We believe that God hears our prayers and He answers them. And he tells us to pray for our political leaders. But but it occurred to me this week that praying for our political leaders is more than just an act of submission to them. It's also deeply subversive. Because as we pray for them, we go straight over their head. We go someone with a much higher pay grade than they do. We put our hope in the fact that whether we voted for them or not, there is one more powerful. Powerful. A king of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of senators and local members, members, of premiers and prime ministers. He's our king. And so we bring them to him in prayer. We pray to support them and to seek their good, but also to remind ourselves of who's really in charge. So we pray for our political leaders. Secondly, we seek shalom where it may be found. It's not a binary thing where there's no shalom and then there'll be full shalom. No, the kingdom of God has come, at least in part, and and we belong to that kingdom. We belong to that king. And so we bring the ethics and the ethos and the vibe of that kingdom with us everywhere we go. And so we care for the poor. We speak the truth in love. We live generously. We forgive and we repent and we seek justice and we walk Humbly, because we are ambassadors of another kingdom. God sends us to speak on his behalf, to show the world and tell the world that shalom really is possible and it's found in Jesus. So we live lives that are just a little bit less anxious than the rest of the world. Because we have the secure hope that shalom's not only possible it's a certainty. And so we seek shalom where it may be found and take it with us everywhere we go. Finally, as the band comes up, the third thing we can do is remember the kind of king we serve. We remember the, the bodily incarnation of Jesus. Celebrate that we serve a king who somehow came with nappies. And we celebrate his death for us on our behalf. So to finish our series, we're going to do just that. We're going to take communion together as a church family. And at this moment, we remember our unity as a family. We come to the end of what has to be the most controversial and divisive series we've ever taken on as a church. And as we stand at the end, we declare that we all still eat at the same table, and we're all one in Christ. And as we do, we declare allegiance to the God with holes in his hands, the lamb who was slain, the kind of king we can trust. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we are humbled by your humility. We are amazed by the lengths you have gone to, to show us love and grace and mercy. We are blown away that you would become vulnerable for the sake of others. And so we thank you. And we ask, God, would you make us worthy ambassadors? Would you make us people of Shalom who wait well for the day when Jesus reigns for all people forever. And This we pray in the name of our mighty King. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.